You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Impressive Hebrew from my wife. Good reading. (laughs) Well, let's pray, and then we're going to spend just a little bit of time reflecting on this genealogy and maybe directing your attention to some of it. So let me pray. Uh, Our Lord Jesus Christ, as we reflect now on this, your bloodline, and genealogy. We pray that you would help us to see you more clearly, and you would help us to trust and be loyal to you with greater diligence. And as our world pushes us towards the Christmas season in this very commercial sense, we'd be a people who remember your birth well and look forward to your second coming well. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if I were to ask any of you to write out your family tree, I wonder how far back you could go. Uh, My hunch is there might be one or two Ancestry.com nerds on here. The rest of us, uh, you know, had our one-month free trial, and you can go back a couple of generations. But unless you're related to some someone of renown, some someone of uh, of great stature, or maybe a United Empire loyalist or something, my guess is it would only take a couple of generations before the names in your family tree sort of disappear and evaporate into oblivion. And even if you know some names back five generations, six, gen- six generations, my guess is you wouldn't know a thing about these individuals, maybe one or two facts. 
And I couldn't help but wonder this week, as I spent some time reflecting on this genealogy, I wonder if technology is going to change how we remember our history. I wonder if, uh, you know, 20 generations from now, whoever buys out Facebook or Meta after it finally collapses, whether the data will sort of naturally roll into a family tree where you can actually look back on people's lives many generations ago and see these relatives of ours. I don't know. We're a people who do love lists. We love things like the New York Times bestsellers list. There's stats for baseball that go back quite a long way. We're a people who care for these things, and I wonder if technology will make it such that one day our children can look back and see this many generations of their lives. But my hunch is I doubt it. Matthew, a former tax collector, is writing something of a biography of Jesus. He's trying his best to record and relay the famous Christmas story and then get into the life of Jesus and the way in which he is a fulfillment of what all of what God has promised before and what God has intended to do. And he opens up his gospel, his biography of Jesus, with this genealogy of Jesus, this Ancestry.com style stuff. And for this Advent season, we're going to look at these, this biography of Jesus, this first coming, so that we can prepare well for the second. But I want to begin by asking, why does this genealogy matter? And I want to suggest that this family tree... This family tree of Jesus, if we look at it with some closeness and we reflect on it with some focus, we'll find that this is going to change and transform how we think about this season that we're entering into, this season that's overly commercialized and overly busy. Because this genealogy is going to tell us that Christmas is about real history, it's about real grace, and it's about a real king. Okay, so first Christmas is about real history, and I hope you see this. Um, We live in this kind of secular, multicultural world that is fine with people having their own kind of private belief systems that can be sort of personal and, and dealt with in your home. But Matthew is actually very much trying to connect the birth of Jesus Christ with very real history, the history of the nation, especially of Israel, and of all of God's workings on the earth up to the point of the arrival with Jesus. He is connecting Jesus with real history, This is the birth of the boy who turned the world upside down. And when you see the lineage he comes from, you will understand why that is the case. Matthew is going out of his way to say, this is no fable. This is no myth, no legend, no fairy tale. This is not how Matthew's gospel worked. And myths did not give long lists of genealogy. Matthew wants to say that Jesus' birth is real and true history. And proper Christmas celebration, proper Celebration of Advent tells us that Christmas is about real history. Now, why is this important? Well, this is important because, as I said, we live in this sort of multicultural society where we've kind of made this agreement, this pact, that the way we're going to all get along is we're going to be careful with our views in, in, in public society. And there's some benefits to that, and there's some necessity to that, and there's an element of Christian neighbor love that's a part of that. However, one of the things that can slowly happen is that people begin to see Jesus And this manger scene, you know, all the stories that go around it, similar to the way that they see the story of Santa and his elves. Not as real history, but sort of stylized, uh, sort of mythological fables in history. Fun myths that are, in some senses, inspiring and good for the world and give us a new reason to celebrate in a new season. And while the story of Jesus does have some of these interesting myth-like traits, the star that draws in the, the wise men from the east, The sort of shepherds seeing the clouds part and angels singing above. 
Jesus being this grand liberator and rescuer from the people uh, that were in crisis, people that were in turmoil. Matthew is saying, though, that this is no myth or fable. This is about a real set of people, a real place and time, a world with smells, a world you could touch. Christmas is about real history. If you know anything about Greek mythology or Roman mythology, this is not how they tell their fables. This story is about a place and time and history. Now, I don't know if any of you guys know the name Bart Ehrman. He is uh, maybe one of the leading critics of the Bible. He's a New Testament scholar. He's an expert in the Greek language and an expert in textual criticism. He actually uh, studied at one of the schools I studied at when I was uh, in, in my training. And he subsequently eventually got to a place where he renounced the Christian faith. And though he had excellent skills in the language and excellent skills in understanding how texts work, he uh, sort of used his skills to undercut a lot of what the Bible has to say. But he wrote a book that was quite interesting called, entitled this, Did Jesus Exist? And he starts this book this way. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it's helpful for you to hear as we, think, as we go into this Christmas season and we think about the birth of Jesus. He writes this, Every week I receive two or three emails asking me whether or not Jesus existed as a human being. When I started getting these emails some years ago now, I thought the question was rather peculiar and I didn't take it serious. Of course Jesus existed. Everyone knows he existed, don't they? He goes on to say, Those who do not think Jesus existed are frequently militant in their views and remarkably adept at countering evidence to the, that to the rest of civilized culture seems compelling and even unanswerable. The reality is that whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly existed. And virtually every scholar of antiquity, of biblical studies, of classics, and of Christian origins in this country, and in fact in the Western world, would agree. Many of these scholars have no vested interest in the matter. As it turns out, I myself do not either. I am not a Christian. I have no interest in promoting the Christian cause or the Christian agenda. I'm an agnostic with atheistic leanings. And my life and views of the world would be approximately the same, whether or not Jesus existed. My beliefs would vary very little. The answer to the question of Jesus' historical existence will never make me more or less happy, content, hopeful, likable, rich, famous, or immortal. But as a, history, as a historian, I think evidence matters, and the past matters. And for anyone to whom both evidence and the past matters, a dispassionate consideration of the case makes it quite plain. Jesus did exist. Ehrman's point is simple. There's no getting around it. Some 2,000 years ago, a boy was born in what we now, in, in, in modern day, sort of in Bethlehem, in, in an area of, of modern day Israel, and this boy turned the world upside down. We're still celebrating him today. So proper celebration of Christmas means not letting this become a myth in your mind, but it also means as you in, interact with your neighbors, those who are non-Christians, those maybe who even reject Christianity, you must remember that they have a problem to deal with. What do they do with Jesus, this boy who was born, the one that we celebrate on Christmas morn? They can reject his claims. They can say he's insane. But what they cannot say with any sort of reasonable seriousness is that he did not exist. And Matthew wants you to hear. He wants you to hear very clearly that Jesus was born. This is about real and true history. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the, the genesis of Jesus, the sort of beginning of his life. So Christmas, proper celebration of Christmas is about real history. Proper celebration of Christmas is about real grace. I know there is a soccer game on. I'll try to move quickly. It's not on yet, but 
and I muted my phone. Don't even try to send me alerts. I promise I won't look at them. <laughs> Proper celebration of Christmas is about, about, uh, is about real history. It's also about real grace. Where do we see this, though? And maybe this is the most exciting part of this genealogy. If you think about it, uh, genealogy in this culture to which this book is written would have been extremely important. Uh, who you are was, was defined not so much by what you did as in our culture, but they, it was defined by whose you are, who you belong to. And when you would record your genealogy, you would put the best foot forward. In fact, ooh, that could be problematic. In fact, when um, Herod the Great wanted to make the case to, to, that he, he ought to be the king of the Jews, that they ought to submit to him, he actually doctored up his genealogy to make, it look, make himself look more respectable to the Jewish people. The same could be said of the Jewish historian Josephus. To sort of make his credentials uh, polished, he doctors up his genealogy. It's full of exaggerations and inconsistencies to make the case that he's sort of part of the royal Maccabean bloodline. Now, where do we see Christmas being about real grace in this passage? Well, what we see in this passage is the exact opposite of doctoring up one's genealogy. Why, how could I say that? Well, in this genealogy, first, we have five women. Five women listed, which is not a huge deal in our culture, but in this culture would have been sort of uh, bizarre. There are other genealogies where women are listed, but as a general principle, women were not eligible to hold on to property, and they were not frequently listed in genealogies. And here, in this genealogy, we have five women. And not only do we have five women, we have five unique women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and a woman who is only recorded as Uriah's wife before we get to Mary. Listen, this is a bad resume. This is not the way to start a following. This is not the way to sort of make messianic claims. Three of these women are non-Jewish. Ruth is a Moabite. Tamar is from Canaan. She's a Canaanite. Rahab is from Jericho. And Uriah was a Hittite. So Uriah's wife is at least tied in with Hittite blood. This is an embarrassing genealogy morally. Tamar, you may remember in the book of Genesis, pretends that she's a cult prostitute to convince her father-in-law to sleep with her and impregnate her. That's Tamar. Rahab, we know, ran a brothel and was a prostitute. And Uriah was a Hittite who uh, Uriah's wife ends up becoming a part of the bloodline because the King David sees Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, bathing, and he calls for her and he demands, the, the demands to take her as his own wife. In a sense, she is the victim of some kind of sexual aggression from the king. And then we have Mary, who's most likely a teen pregnancy, wandering around pregnant out of wedlock. A couple of weeks ago, we had some friends over at our house, and I have this coffee table book. One I'm quite proud of, one of my best Value Village finds. It's called uh, The Top 100 Photos of Canadian History. And uh, anyone who comes over, when time gets boring, they start flipping through it. And while we were there, one of our friends opened up a photo. It was the father of the Confedera fathers of the Confederation. And she pointed to a picture, and she said, that's my great, great, great grandpa. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. That's your grandfather? That's amazing. She said, yes, that's him. His name is William McDougall. But she said, it's not really that amazing. Look him up. And so sure enough, I did look him up. And at the bottom of his Wikipedia article, I read this. McDougall was a Canadian first nationalist. He consistently espoused deeply anti-Catholic and anti-Aboriginal views. He was called by many vain, erratic, and irredeemably pig-headed. <laughs> Not the person in your genealogy that you go around boasting about, hey? I mean, when was the last time any of your coworkers or friends or neighbors did genealogy.com and said, you know, this is incredible, you won't believe who I'm related to? 
you know, I, I am related to uh, Paul Bernardo. You know, Jeffrey Dobner, third cousins, twice removed. Uh, Hitler, he's a, di- he's a distant relative. No one does that. In fact, if you got on genealogy.com and you found you were related to one of these people, my guess is you would delete your account very quickly and pretend you never knew this. These kind of things are, are, are gross to us. They haunt us. They, they, having a bad bloodline, we wonder, does that have any impact on who we are and how we work out, or live out in society? And here we are in the genealogy of Jesus, and we have participants of heinous sexual sins and victims of sexual crimes being listed as the names, the, the, the way in which Jesus' bloodline uh, comes into this earth. Here is, what, here is how Christmas teaches us about grace. The theolog- theologian and author Frederick Bruner put it best this way. He writes this. One gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them into his record and so finally to preach the gospel even through his genealogy. Matthew was trying to say to you and to me, Jesus came to this world and he was a full and real human. His bloodline includes victims and perpetrators. In his DNA, in his very blood, are prostitutes. In his bloodline is incest. He knows what it means to fully become human and take on the effects of the fall. The effects of the fall were inside his DNA strands, were coursing through his blood. He became fully human. This was his lineage, and he came with this blood to be for us a savior, the hope of all the nations, not just the the hope of Israel, but the hope of all these people who are now part of his bloodlines by less than ideal circumstances. And Christmas should be a reminder to you of that. Jesus is not ashamed. I don't care what you've done. He's not ashamed to call you sister or brother. Look who he calls great-great-great-great-grandmother. He has no problem welcoming you into the family because look who is in his bloodline. He is truly and fully human. He's the Savior that we all need. There is nothing to be ashamed of. Take it all to him. His grace is greater than your ability to sin. This is the good news of Christmas. Christmas is about real history. It's about real grace, but we also have to say that Christmas is about a real king, and I think this is Matthew's primary point in this genealogy. Jesus is connected to Abraham, the one to whom God made promises to bless the entire world. But verse 1 tells us that he's the son of David. Verse 6 reminds us he's tied to David the king. In his blood is the royal bloodline. Finally here, we have someone to be proud of, a hero, a warrior. David the outlaw turned king is part of Jesus' bloodline. He comes to be the king that David never could have been. In fact, he descends from David through Uriah's wife. As we already had said, who was Uriah? Uriah was one of David's faithful men. He was a Hittite. He was married to a woman named Bathsheba. He protected David when David was an outlaw. He was loyal to him and demanded that he be received as the rightful king. And David stabs him in the back, sees his wife bathing while he's off at war, has him killed in war, to cover up for David's own infidelity. This is Bathsheba. David is the great king of Israel during Israel's golden age, but Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is a greater David that has come to the earth. But he's reminding us that David, as great as he was, the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart, the greatest king Israel ever had, David, as great as he was, his bloodline passes on through adultery and murder. 
the trashiest day of David's life is put forward for the world to see, and Matthew is saying Jesus has royal lineage, even if the lineage has come to this. He's saying the great king, the hero of Israel, the greatest guy in the genealogy, even he was someone who needed grace. He didn't earn his place there. His own record would have had him removed as a king over Israel. He could never be God's messianic king. The best of earthly rulers were filled with frailties and hospitality. This guy doesn't deserve to be a king over the world. And yet we find his lineage does advance. And in fact, his lineage advances so much so that it seems as though it's disappeared to utter obscurity. Here is the royal bloodline of David, now coursing through the veins of an ordinary carpenter. No offense, carpenters. You know, in a a backwoods town. Unknown. This is where the bloodline has come. And Matthew says, this is the Jesus that comes to this world. He has come to be the true king not like David, but greater than David. He will not have a Bathsheba story in his lineage. He's come to be a king, not just for the people of Israel, but for the whole world. He's come to be the king, the long-promised king. He's arrived, and nothing could stand in his way. And this is how the king comes. Through an ordinary birth in an ordinary little town that no one should know of in the world. Ordinary parents. No large social media presence. And somehow here we are, 2,000 years later, still reading of this lineage and coming together to celebrate his birth. 2,000 years and the promises to Abraham and David were fulfilled, but born in this little manger. It's not always easy to see what God was up to, but he sent his true king to this world on Christmas morn, this descendant of David, to reign over all the earth And after his death and in his ascension into heaven, he reigns until all of his enemies are put under his feet, the last being death. So as you look at the manger scene, remember that the king has come, and he's actually reigning now. And one day he will either come to receive you as his loyal subject or to judge you as his enemies, and he will put all things to right. He's made a way in which you can declare allegiance now, no matter how far you've backslidden, no matter how far you're away, receiving amnesty, forgiveness, and peace. As I close, I just want to remind you of this, that there is no sin you could commit that could thwart God and throw God off of his plans and his promises. This lineage is full with many attempts, some of the best attempts one could come up with. And the Lord was true and faithful to his promises. And I don't care what you've done in your life. I don't care where you've been or what you've been involved in. The Lord calls you to come back and this morning to receive this Jesus rightfully as your king. May this Christmas season be for you a season of peace in the midst of our busyness. May Jesus come and challenge your need to prove yourself, accepting that in him you have been pursued and accepted. May Jesus come and challenge your need to control everything, knowing full and well that the God who sits in the heavens controls all things and sent his son Jesus to bring salvation to you. And friends, whether you're Christian and you've heard this story from the very beginning of your life or this is your first time hearing it today, would you declare your loyalty to the one who came and took on flesh and blood and all the effects and consequences of sin. Would you declare your loyalty to him, knowing that full forgiveness and amnesty are received because he gave his blood and his life for you. Receive the greatest gift you could imagine. It feels like forgiveness, hope, and a new future. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this genealogy and for the ways in which, as you saw 
fit to bring salvation into our world. You didn't look for a bloodline that was unstained or untainted, but all the ordinary effects of sin, sins that cause great shame and harm in our lives. You came and made yourself known through a bloodline like this. Father, would you come again afresh to us this Christmas season and renew our loyalty in Jesus Christ, knowing that all of our sins are forgiven because of his conquering work on the cross? Would you make us a people of hope in his name, we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.